For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. We got a uh, bonus for you today. A little extra long-form podcast to start off your week. And it's a special one because I turned the mics on Evan Ratliff, my co-host. He and I have uh, done this a couple of times before when Evan has uh, written big pieces. But this time, he has not just written a piece, he's written a book. It's called The Mastermind. And uh, he has a sort of like synopsis of it early in this conversation that's much better than anything I will do. I can tell you this. Uh, the book is good, like um, really, really good. I'm going to uh, read some things quickly that other people have said about the book in case you do not uh, trust me. The Mastermind is a tour de force of shoe leather reporting, says the Los Angeles Times. A masterwork of investigative journalism, says the Daily Mail. A true crime classic, says Publishers Weekly. It also got a uh, rave review in the New York Times. They said, uh, Ratliff's journey is not just one of miles logged on the ground, but of incomparable oddness. Come on, you people. This book is awesome. Here's one more for you. Three-time guest on the long-form podcast, David Gran, says, With his relentless and fearless reporting, Evan Ratliff has pried open a hidden world. Filled with high-tech gangsters and drug kingpins and double-crossers, I'm telling you, this story is incredible. And Stone Cold Hitmen, the story is as fascinating as it is terrifying, and it is one that will hold you in its grip. Come on. Go get this book. Also, I just want to say one more thing before uh, we get to this conversation. If you have gotten something out of this podcast over the years, particularly Evan's interviews, which if you've been paying attention for the last like 18 months or so have been about book writing, and I think they've been like really nuanced and interesting because he has been grappling with book writing himself. Anyway, if you've gotten something out of the show, uh, which is free, a nice way to say thank you is to buy Evan's book. Go pick up The Mastermind. It's this wild story. It feels like it's out of the movies and, and the fact that it's both true and the only reason we know it is because Evan was so dogged and thoughtful in his reporting. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's a really incredible piece of work, and uh, I hope you buy it. So that is my spiel. Of course, the only reason that I'm able to spiel at all is thanks to MailChimp. Their support makes this podcast possible. Speaking of this podcast, here's me and Evan. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Max. Yeah. Uh, it's been a little while since we did this. It has been. How long has it been? Um, I'm going to say three years. It was 2016, so it's not quite three years. We've done it twice before. We did it for the the oil man's daughter. Yeah, and then we did the original Mastermind series. Right. Here's the thing that's different this time compared to those other two is um, I feel like those other times uh, they were great works that you had done, and uh, they were being <laughs> they were being read by many people. But you you were not having extensive conversations about them. 
Yeah, I wasn't doing publicity. Right. Yeah. But now you are on the circuit. You're just going to give me all my sound bites. Yeah, you're a, you're a sound bite man. Let's see if you can get me off my how sound many, bite game. How many interviews have you conducted in this very room that we're sitting in right now? Here in the studio, probably five or six. You're on the grind, man. It's a lot of talking, but you, you have to talk to anyone who will talk to you. Basically. You do that, you're feeling? I just feel like you go so quickly back to no one caring at all. So in the limited time window when there are people who just show up and they say, I've read your book or I want to talk about your book and I have X audience of anywhere from 10 to 10 million people, I will talk to them because six months from now, I'm probably going to be like, who wants to talk? And no one's going to want to talk. So I'm in the mode of talking to anyone and also like oscillating wildly between self-loathing and <laughs> self-promotion. That's the other part of it. Are, are the, those are uh, opposite ends of a spectrum or are they like, is that like a circle and those two things meet? <laughs> I don't know. We need like John McPhee to diagram. <laughs> it's like AAB, right. BBA. BBA, well, it's I just, hate myself. <laughs> you kind of have to self-promote or you or feel like a very an obligation or a compulsion to like tweet things or do whatever, but then feel bad about it, you know, almost instantly. And then you just do it again. It doesn't stop you from doing it again. Cause you're just like anything that will make a difference. Um, all right. Give the spiel, man. Give the, um, give the synopsis of this book we're talking about. The book is about, well, it's primarily about a guy named Paul Calder LaRue, who was, is, a South African. He was actually born in Zimbabwe. He was raised partly in Zimbabwe, partly in South Africa. He was a kind of classic tech-interested kid of the type that you find among tech entrepreneurs that are very powerful and notable in our society today. Um, as a teenager, he got really into computers, wasn't very social, dropped out of high school, trained himself to be a programmer, and then left home in South Africa as a teenager, as 18, 17, 18, and then kind of made his way in the world of software in London and Australia. Along the way, he started writing encryption software and was very good at that and wrote some encryption software that became the basis of a very famous program called TrueCrypt. And then he got into selling prescription drugs online and he built a kind of empire out of the Philippines where he moved and he sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of painkillers over the internet to American customers from the Philippines. He had thousands of people working for him. And then he took the profits from that endeavor and he poured them into other incredibly illicit operations, diversified into real drug selling, whether it's methamphetamine they bought from North Korea or cocaine out of South America. He dealt arms, including selling missile technology to Iran. He was building drones. He was setting up a militia in Somalia. He was dealing in black market gold all over Africa. He was laundering money in Hong Kong. He basically got into like every crime that you can think of, including eventually violence and murder as part of his operations. So it's the story of how he did that and why he did that, but also all the people that got caught up in it, his employees, and then the law enforcement side of tracking him and eventually bringing him down. There are two other things about it, uh, little beats in that story, which you skipped over, which I think are important. One of them is that he created this software that became TrueCrypt, and he gave it away free in like the uh, sort of like utopian days of uh, open source software. 
and then all these people around him got rich and he didn't and that was like a big motivating factor and the other one is like i feel like you've told that story enough times now that like you're just like and then uh boatloads of cocaine (laughs) and trying to cut deals with iran uh murder yada yada and like the book and the story and the whole thing reads is just like this incredible and like very very fast uh stacking of ambition and calamity and stakes and it was all him which is like another thing that feels very significant to me is that like there was no one else who understood the scope of what the organization was doing like he didn't have some right hand deputy who was like making things happen the deals were him the ideas were him people in the different parts of the organization actually had no idea what the other ones were doing like uh, uh, he was a a mastermind yeah he was a one man organized crime syndicate he had all the hallmarks of organized crime like the mafia or you know Mexican drug cartels or whatnot but there was no family there was no organization or that he came up through as a lieutenant he just made it up he made it up out of his head and then when it was successful then he just had more ideas and more ideas about where it should go and what it should be. But he never really invested any true authority in any other people except, you know, some of his henchmen sort of freelance, you know, violence sometimes. But there was no one else who actually controlled any part of the operation. He did everything from his laptop. He almost never slept. And he was based in Manila or he'd be anywhere in the world. No one ever really knew where he was. And he could run the entire thing from this encrypted old beat up windows computer that he had there's this um like theme that runs through the book which basically like i feel like this is the thing that we you like think about with master criminals is like what if they had been legit what would they have been able to do in the business world but i feel like in this one like the line is very <coughs> closely tied and it's like could this guy have been zuckerberg like it's almost all the same skills do you think that he wanted to be famous do you think like he wanted to be known for his brilliance? Like there is some brilliance in what he's doing. And I wonder whether you felt like he wanted to be uh, known for it. I think the truth is he was probably conflicted. I mean, one of the things that I've asked in every single interview is like, is was he a sociopath or, you know, what ultimately was his motivation? And I, I don't know what his motivation was, or at least I didn't interview him. So I didn't get a chance to ask him that question. But I think the true answer is that he had a variety of motivations like we all do, and some of them were conflicting. So he, in a way, he wanted to be the least famous person in the world. He was taking his name early on in his operation. He had done things under his own name, I think, before he knew how big it would get. And then when it started getting huge and he started clearly knowing that he was going to draw the attention of law enforcement he was taking his name off of everything and putting more layers between him and what was sort of available to anyone who was tracking it. And so he was trying to make himself more invisible. His photo wasn't anywhere online. You could not find a photo of this guy. Like in 2007, 2008, when the DEA started tracking him, they could not find a photo of him. They finally found one in like an obscure newsletter of the Manila Polo Club where he was a member. And But at the same time, he would say things to people who worked for him like, I'm going to be on CNN when I'm arrested. And so I think he knew that as part of what he was doing, he needed to be invisible. But what he really wanted was to be 
the biggest criminal of all time. He wanted to be known for building this operation that was incredibly unique, or at least he wanted his influence to be felt. Like he wanted to be able to send someone into any country and have them make a deal on his behalf. And when people came to him and said, oh, you're Paul LaRue, like you, you can do this, you can do that. He, I think he really, that gave him a big boost. Yeah, I mean, he, it, the, part of the reason I ask is this like, you read the book and it feels like he saw seams in the point in which like the fabric of the internet and the fabric of real life connect that other people didn't see. Like he just saw places where you could press really hard and break through. And again, there's like, there's some brilliance in that. Like it was some inefficient in the market. It just happened to be like a very uh, criminal and nefarious plan. But even like the first one, the prescription stuff, like is illegal. There's an argument right. around that. He was like messing around in some gray area. Yeah, it was definitely a gray market at the least. Yeah. And and this analogy that you kind of like tacitly make in the book a bunch of like he is shares all this DNA with these like founders who are on the cover of Fast Company and stuff. It just feels to me like such I was just in Silicon Valley, just spent like a couple days there. And like the culture of that place is like people put themselves forward as the wonderkind, you know, unique minds that thought of things that no one else had thought of. And I just, I wonder how, whether you think there was some tension for him in like having to be a ghost and also seeing all these people around him, Zuckerberg, all these people becoming so famous. I'm sure. I'm sure that that is the case. I mean, there was a whole, one of his employees talked to me at length about how he wanted to build these towers in Manila and call them the LaRue Towers. Like that was part of what his goal. He got an architect to draw plans to do it. But ultimately you can't have the LaRue <laughs> Towers if you're, you know, buying tons of meth from the government of North Korea. Like your LaRue Towers are just going to draw attention to you. So also your real estate returns on the LaRue Towers are not going to come anywhere close to what you can get with South American cocaine shipped to the Asian market. Like that's 5,000% returns. That's not your, you know, building a building and then selling the condos or whatever that would entail. So yeah, I mean, I think he definitely had that conflict. And I even, you know, when I started writing about him, I thought of him as this like mirror image of those people, but they were like pretty far on either side of the mirror. And then I don't know if that makes sense in terms of the mirror analogy, but they were like on a spectrum, but far away. Yeah, they were almost on different poles or something. And then in the middle is sort of like the legality and like and morality. But the more I did it and also the more the way we look at the technology industry has evolved in the last 10 years or five years or even since I started the book, they came closer and closer together where you see something like Uber and you look at how they went around regulators and did things that were illegal, maybe not quite illegal, but they were definitely breaking all the rules to get into the market in Portland, Oregon. And they're exactly the same. I mean, Paul LaRue was just working around regulations around prescription drugs in the United States and what could be sold where and what was controlled and what wasn't and shifting his all the time, shifting what they were doing. Like Tennessee, you can't sell tramadol anymore. Okay, we won't sell tramadol in Tennessee. Now we're only going to sell it out of Wisconsin. And it's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And the, the line became sort of thinner and thinner to where I, I sort of 
by the end viewed these sort of founder types as like standing right across from each other, staring each other in the face. And one of them's like, you know, Paul LaRue's like, how come you're famous and I'm not? Because we're doing the same thing. Yeah. Here's the re- actual reason I was asking about this, though, is um, we should not pretend as though we have not discussed this book at all. You and I have discussed it quite a bit as you were working on it, sort of. There was like a very specific kind of thing that you wanted to talk to me about, which was like sometimes it was like structural things, but sometimes it was kind of like more existential things about the process. And there was like another book and we can talk about that. But I feel like you never told me about how crazy it was. And I don't, I don't understand why. Like, I feel like (laughs) there are times when like you and I will go for a drink and I will like really be interested in, in getting into some depth about like something totally mundane that is happening with me, like at work or like with my kid or something. It's like pretty boring. And I'm like, hey, man, let's talk for like a couple hours about this. I'm like trying to work through some shit here. And you're like, sure, yeah. For years, man, we were having these kind of boring conversations. That's not boring. No, but, but <laughs> uh, it's not exciting either. And you were like processing this insane shit. And I don't totally get why you didn't talk about it more. And I wondered why now. And then reading the book, I wondered why. And also, I wondered, this is a real, like, leap here, whether that in any way could help you understand whatever tension that guy felt. I feel like reading the book, I was thinking about you walking around New York and all these places you were going reporting and basically, like, being consumed with this insane story with these details that are, like, out of the pages of a fucking Coen Brothers movie and, like, not telling anyone about it. Yeah, I... There was definitely a practical problem where, and I had this even with Andy Ward, my editor, who's been on this podcast. So Andy, I would sometimes send him stuff that I had found. I would be in the Philippines or in Hong Kong and I would send him an email. And he would always be like, "That's that sounds crazy. But some of the details required such an accumulation of other details and knowledge of the story to really make sense that... Like, I had this whole thing with this guy, John Nash, who's like a very, very minor character in the book. And some of the shit around John Nash was so insane. And like, like what? Just like that John Nash was this person who was arrested in the Philippines. And then it turned out his name was not John Nash. Like, they discovered like he had a fake passport. He'd gotten a dead man's identity as John Nash. But then when I got a layer deeper, I discovered that his real name was also John Nash. He had just gotten the identity of another John Nash (laughs) to use and then he was like a guy who happened to be at the murder of two people and there was a sort of initial thing where I thought like man this guy's like it's really unfortunate that he two of his friends were both murdered by Paul LaRue essentially and then like keep fast forwarding keep fast forwarding and he realized like he was one of Paul LaRue's like bag men and like it took so long to figure that out and then I finally like got in to see him in the detention center in the Philippines because he was in immigration detention and had this insane like half an hour interview with him, which I wasn't even supposed to be there. And they just sort of let us in because we were like, we're his friend and I'm going back to the States tomorrow. So I just really want to see him. Anyway, I didn't even use it in the book. It's like in the epilogue, I think, because it was impossible to even get to that point of explaining why it's so crazy to talk to John Nash. He's like 
not even important really in some sense. So there was a lot of that mm-hmm. that I felt like I couldn't explain it. But I don't know if there was a a larger reason. I felt like it's the only thing that I have to talk about, like barring like family and other things. And maybe I just thought people were bored with it. Like it's going on for so long that I don't know. It just didn't feel like it was that engaging of a conversation, maybe. <laughs> and there's a follow-up question though, which is basically like, okay, so A, next time that you are uh, getting led into like uh, immigration prisons in the Philippines to talk to some guy that you've been like circling for months and months and months uh, and it actually happens, like feel free to bring that up with me. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> but the second part of it is how did that, how did it feel, I guess? I mean, I know you're talking to your wife, I'm sure, and to Andy, but like you were sitting in your house working on this book for years, what, two years? The whole thing was five years, but we did the series, so it really felt like it was split into yeah to the first like two two and a half years, and then the series came out, and then another two and a half years. So that second two and a half years is what I'm talking about. Where like you're going on these reporting trips, crazy things are happening. Sometimes people are like quasi threatening your life. You're shrugging, but that happened, and then uh, you're going home to Brooklyn sitting in your office, in your house, and writing this book and processing all of this stuff. And I'm interested in how, uh, what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I, I would say it was very strange. It feels so isolated in my brain somehow because it was partly because it involved this reporting that was all over the place and things that happened all over the world. So it wasn't like, I mean, things did happen in New York, and there were actually a bunch of court hearings in New York, but it was sort of like, that felt like a different world, too, like the world inside the federal courthouse in New York. And it seemed very divorced from my life. Like, I would pick up for my life and go to the Philippines for two weeks, and then come back to my life. My life was the same. And then I would just sit there all day and think about this stuff. And then I was, like, going to pick up my kids, you yeah. know, from from daycare. And it just felt like, it didn't feel like I was, like, I guess the way I want to put it is it didn't feel like I was like caught up in a dramatic story in my life. It felt like I was like going out. And when I was in the Philippines, it was like all in, I'm all, like in the middle of it. But then when I came home, it felt like, okay, now I have this vast archive and I'm just sort of accessing this archive and trying to kind of winnow it down and translate it onto, into a kind of readable version of this craziness. It was just like trying to wrangle. Is that how you like work with articles too it's like uh you like put them in their space and they don't escape their space i think so yeah i mean i've definitely had ones that were obviously like more personal and like i was either a bigger part of the story i mean i am in the book um but i don't know i mean even now as i'm saying it i'm i'm questioning whether (laughs) what i've just told you is accurate because i there was a point especially when i was first starting where i would just stay up all night you know like looking at things like because there were all these online connections that you could make and databases you could access, like Hong Kong company databases and trying to figure out where all this shit was registered. And so it was kind of like I would get lost in it inside my computer. But at the same time, I don't... <laughs> I, if you're, you're causing me to reflect on this in a way that I'm not sure that I, <laughs> I actually have. I'm just trying to get it done. You're just trying to get it done. But I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know, man. I feel like uh, I will stop asking about this in a second. But 
it is a thing that I'm genuinely curious about. Is like uh, reading the book was a um, was a, there was a multitude of experiences for me reading the book. <laughs> One of them was like, oh man, my guy wrote a great book. This this is fantastic. That was one experience I had reading the book. Another one was like, oh, man, uh, this guy was like uh, getting his life threatened a bunch of times. I wish I had known that at the moment. That's like quite scary. And I want to ask you about that. But then the third one is just like I did have this experience kind of of like replaying not specific conversations we'd had, but just generally like the themes that we'd been touching on. Because I I really think that like what we were talking about was boring compared to your book. (laughs) Well, I also have a thing, to be honest, you and I have interviewed a lot of reporters and we've both interviewed, you know, legitimate war reporters or people who are going into like, you know, like Ben Taub, like he's just like going into Syria, going into Iraq. And so there is a part of me, I think, from all of that, that makes me not want to be the person that's kind of like, oh, it's crazy. You won't believe how dangerous it was what I did because it's... I'm always comparing it to that. I'm not comparing it to sort of like going down to the bodega and getting a Diet Coke. I'm comparing it to like people that I know that are doing things right. that feel like to me they're at a they're operating at a next level that I'm not actually operating at. And so and I feel the same way about the kind of like literary writing aspects of it too where I feel like there are people operating at a level that I'm not operating at. So I don't want to be the person who's like you know talking in a high flutin way about what I'm doing when I can see that there are other people who are doing it in a different way. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a factor. Just so we can get this out out of the table, I know a lot of people have asked you about it, but um, despite the fact that you were reporting and trying to expose a master criminal who was at this point in the custody of the American government, unclear about where his whereabouts were, and remained like an incredibly shadowy figure... You genuinely didn't feel like nervous for your safety in that process. I would say that I genuinely didn't feel. Uh, I would say I genuinely did feel nervous for my safety in that process. I mean, you can kind of cast it in different ways. Like I definitely, when I went to the Philippines from the very beginning, I was very careful, and I intended to be careful, not least because the fixer that I was working with, Aurora, who's amazing and is. A, incredible reporter in her own right and who was living there at the time she was from the very beginning was like I'm not sure I want to do this she's saying to me and also you should be careful you should be careful who you're talking to you should be careful what you're doing you should be careful you're not followed like she was very attuned to the environment in the Philippines and the kind of people that I was potentially dealing with and so I was very careful and I think because I was pretty careful I felt like I did everything I could and I took the risks that I thought were worth taking. And it's sort of both things are true. Like it was threatening in an ambient way throughout, but I also had made those decisions and I didn't, I I wasn't sort of walking in being like, someone's going to beat me up or kill me in this situation. I was just like, I've decided to do this. Like there was a point where this guy, Joseph Hunter, who was one of the hitmen who was in custody he sent word through someone that he knew that he wanted me to get some stuff for him, for him while I was in the Philippines. And I was like, this is a terrible idea. Like this has all the hallmarks of like some kind of weird setup. Right. It's like, I need some DVDs from someone. But I just thought like, well, this is going to be interesting. This could be an interesting scene. I could mean an interesting, like whoever's on the other end of this transaction could be a very interesting source. 
I will not meet under their conditions. Where they wanted to meet, I refused to meet. I was like, I'm going to be at this bar at this time. It's full of people. If you show up, you can hand me the stuff and walk out. And they never showed up. So that was a case where there was a potential safety risk there. But I felt like I mitigated enough. I mean, if someone's trying to assassinate me, but I didn't really think that they were. But you never know. (laughs) When you get assassinated, you're the last one to know. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you can look at it one way where, like, I definitely walked into a situation where it had occurred to me that someone could just be showing up to kill me, but I did not think that was likely or I wouldn't have done it in the first place. And I took some measures to make sure it was in a public place. And then I felt like I was good and I didn't think about it that much. Like I just had a taco and waited for them. (laughs) (laughs) When you're assassinated, you're the last one to know is definitely our Polko Chisuda. Um, what, how else do you like take precautions in that situation? Like, what else do you do to mitigate risk when you're in an unknown place dealing with characters of ill repute? Well, meeting in public places, although that doesn't always work. Like, I met a guy in his bar that he owned, which is a public place. But then he was like, let's go upstairs to my tiny office and talk. And then we did. And, like, what are you going to do? Like, you can either say, like, no, I'm not going to go up there with you, or this guy's an incredible source and I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And at some point you have to decide. And, and and what you're telling me is once you make that decision, you are able to sort of like put the doubt somewhere else and just kind of like be there in that small office and get what you need. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's like any, I mean, I don't want to be flip about it, but it's like any kind of risk that you internalize and you just decide in your life you're going to ride in a car, even though a lot of people get in car accidents and die. Like it's not that quite that but it's sort of like once you you accept the risk and you internalize the risk and you say okay I've done what I can but I'm not going to not do this then you just have to do it mm-hmm. and if it got into a situation where it seemed very dangerous then obviously I would have tried to get out of it but I I did have some confidence that most of these people are not that's not what they're out for like if I show up to talk to them mostly they want to know how I found them and also They want to tell me their story, just like anyone else in any other story that you come across. Most of the people want to tell you their story, and they're kind of excited that someone showed up, especially who flew all the way across the world to talk to them. And also, there was so much information that was contained in different places that no one had, so people wanted to know what I knew. Right, like I could tell them stuff about themselves that they didn't know, that they were under indictment, that they were, you know, that Paul LaRue was in jail or out of jail. Like, that's what they wanted to know. Right. And so that felt like that kind of protected me, the desire of other people for information. But there were, I mean... Right, because of the way that he set the organization up, at some point in the reporting, you became the person who knew it about as well as anyone except for him. Yes, and the U.S. authorities were keeping him, Paul LaRue, very secret. Even after his name had been revealed in the New York Times, they were keeping him very secret. So no one knew. There were even lawyers who thought maybe he had been released. Lawyers for defendants in cases related to him. So there was just a lot of misinformation and lack of information. So particularly in the Philippines, whether it's the police or people who worked in his organization, people are just like, where is he? What's going on? Am I at risk? Is he coming back here? And I I knew, I didn't know the answers to all those questions, but I knew more than they knew. Right. And so I always had a kind of advantage in that information exchange. Just like interpersonally, how did you carry yourself in those interviews? I'm always pretty much the same. I mean, I have like a, a kind of like 
solicitous, like eager reporting persona, like never trying to be cooler than the person or seem more knowledgeable than the person. Although in this case, like they often did have questions for me. And that was a, that was an unusual thing to go into interviews and have people say like, no, 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 I want to know. First, I want to know like this. I want the answer to that. I want the answer to that. That happened a lot. But I just mostly am like trying to make people feel my curiosity about them. I want Mm -hmm. them to feel like I really think you're interesting and I want to know everything interesting about you. And when you talk to like a mercenary who's done all sorts of insane things that normal human beings do not and frankly should not do in many cases, no one's ever asked them about that. They either exist in a world of people who all do that stuff and they kind of trade their war stories or they don't want to tell people about it ordinary people and so you come in and the guy's like yeah i got shot i shot that guy i did this i went to africa i got this you know like they want to tell those stories like they know they're good stories and so at that point it's mostly just like prompting them it's not like the hard interview Mm -hmm. where you're trying to break them down there were a few of those where like they just clearly didn't want to talk yeah i mean i guess part of what i was asking was like are there steps you have to take to get people in that situation to trust you Yes, but it's not so much convincing. I don't feel like there's nothing I can say to them. It's really like getting them to show up. Like once they show up, the only thing I can do is sort of demonstrate that I know a lot if I need to. But again, I don't want to like project that because I don't want them to make, I don't want them to feel like, oh, I'm the know-it-all. I'm just here to like get a little quote from you to fill in my thing. I want to be like, you have something that I need and you can give it to me. And we'll both feel good about it. That's kind of what I'm trying to, Mm -hmm. that's the situation I'm trying to create. But I do feel like establishing some information as kind of validation that even if they don't talk to me, I know who they are. I mean, by virtue of even contacting them in many cases. Like there was a guy in Israel who he kept being like, he didn't want to talk to me. I was in Tel Aviv and he was, I was texting with him and he was sort of being, and at certain point I think I said like, come on, like, you know, I'm texting with you right now. Like, how do you think I found you? Like, people are talking about you. And so I want to know what you know. I don't want to know what they know about you. I want to know what you know about Paul LaRue. And, you know, then he showed up at a cafe to talk to me. And by that point, he's pretty much going to talk. And and also I was granting anonymity more times than I would have liked. And so that... How did you navigate that? That was a nightmare. That was a nightmare. I feel like that's one of sort of several like ethical things that I feel are talked about in this very basic way that's connected to a kind of newspaper reporting and political reporting that is very difficult to translate into when you're trying to tell a longer story. A good example is anonymity. Like, obviously, you should keep anonymity to a minimum. You should grant anonymity only if you really need it. But first of all, you don't necessarily know when you need it. Like, you don't know what someone's going to tell you sometimes. So do you grant it up front and then find it? Like, even that is fraud. But beyond that, the types of anonymity that you grant are often very confusing. Like, you try to be very straightforward. This is how I view off the record. This is how I view on background. This is on the record. Tell me if you're going off the record, blah, blah, blah. And then you're talking to some person who... Talking to a fucking mercenary in the Philippines. who's literally like... I had one literally say to me, like, don't fucking burn me, man. That's what I'm saying to you. Don't burn me. And what does that mean? Like, okay, but you're telling me things that will, a random reader will not know who you are because your name's not in there, but 
this other guy will know it's you because you're telling details of events that only you and he were at. So am I supposed to protect you or are you protecting yourself? And to even get into that discussion with someone, much less dozens and dozens of people that I was dealing with, is very complicated and mostly they don't want to do it. They don't want to have a very detailed discussion with you about... <laughs> Journalism ethics? Yeah. And like, they're just like, I don't want to get killed. That's their bottom line. And so they're kind of putting it on you. But that's very difficult. I don't know what's going to get someone in trouble. They might tell me something. I have no idea it's the thing that's going to get them in trouble. So I had just a, a lot of... I was. It was very fraught. I felt very fraught about it. And I pared some stuff back. And I feel pretty good about it because I feel like everyone that I've talked to that I was in that situation with so far, some of them are gone. They're ghosts. Like, I can't find them again. Hmm. But everyone that I have talked to has felt good about it. Like, they haven't felt like I burned them if that was their concern. So I think it worked out, but it was that stressed me out a lot. And where you landed ultimately was more conservative in terms of what you put in. A little more conservative, yeah. Like... I mean, honestly, by the end, in the book, a lot of people let me use their name who had not let me use their name in the series. So I was fortunate in that some of the ones I was most worried about, they were just like, you know what, fuck it. Go ahead. I don't care anymore. Use my name. And then it, they're in there as full characters. I mean, Paul Rue's cousin is like that. Like, he had given me so much information, and it was all in a pseudonym. And it was very difficult. There was a lot of backflips to, like use a pseudonym because he was so clearly him. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, he was like, do whatever you want. Like, just use it. It's fine. Why do you think he did that? I think, I mean, he was a fascinating person. I mean, I still communicate with him all the time. I mean, I think he, he wanted the real story to get out. He was like a person who, even to the detriment of himself, was like, I want the story of my cousin and what happened to him and what he did to my family and what he did to all these people. I want that story to come out and I want it to be told the right way. Like he would say that to me. And he really, I feel like lived by that. And ultimately he became, I think a little less worried that LaRue was gonna get out and do something to him. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, LaRue was gonna know it was him talking either way. I think that was also part of it. Like given what he had told me, there was no hiding who he was to the people who were involved. So if someone was going to kill him or be mad at him or do whatever, they were going to know either way. Did you have like a like a spreadsheet where you were like mapping what you had committed to with all these different characters? How did you keep track of it? I have these elaborate like coding schemes. No, not that elaborate, but I have like coding schemes in the notes for the people. So in the beginning of any interview, it says, you know, we'll say like not for attribution, use this. Because sometimes I would try to discuss the attributions with them, and some people are up for that, and some people aren't. Or I would say to them... It's really funny to think about you just like with a hitman in the Philippines being like, okay, so on background, shut the fuck up, man. <laughs> well, I had a hitman... That was another one that was an ethics question in the other direction, which was I had a guy that I found on LinkedIn, which is like... Uh, one of my favorite parts of the book that's like kind of funny was that it's the, it's the only time that LinkedIn has been good for anything. <laughs> yes, I found these guys on LinkedIn, a lot of them, but this one guy in particular who put one of Paul Rue's companies on his like resume. What, did, what was his job title? Um, he was just like security contractor because they they garbage, all say so garbage like, man. <laughs> they, they it's like um, personal protection, like yeah. executive protection, that kind of thing. Which, like, technically, like, true enough. But so I found him, and he was very cagey, 
but he did give me some information. And in order to talk to me at all, I granted him anonymity. So he's in the series, but it's anonymous. And the original series that came out. And then over the course of my subsequent reporting, I found out that he was Paul LaRue's personal hitman. Paul LaRue had a like hit team, but he worked just for LaRue. So when Paul wanted to kill someone on the hit team because they had stolen money from him, he used this guy. And when I found that out, I called him or I emailed him and he called me and like he just admitted it. Like he just told me the whole thing. Like he clearly wanted to get it off his chest, like how they'd killed people. Can you just help me understand that, like the the contours of that conversation? So like he calls you, you send him an email. And I think like, I called him on WhatsApp. So I sent him an email and I said, hey, look, because there had been a trial and he had been referenced in the trial in a way that made it clear to me that it was him. So I sent him an email and I said, look, there's this trial and like you've surfaced in the trial and now I know a lot more. And so let's talk. We'd never talked on the phone. We had only done email and chat. And so then he said, okay, call me. So I called him and I said, it's like a rare tape in which like I talked for like the first, I don't know, 10 minutes or something where five minutes, maybe it seemed like 10 minutes where I'm saying like nervously sort of like, Hey, I went to this trial. Here's what I found out. I know we've talked before, but now I, I have pretty good sense that this is true and that you killed these people. And here's what Paul LaRue said on the stand about you. And then there was kind of like a brief silence. And then he, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically said like, yeah, all right. And then I sort of asked him questions about it. You know, well, is it true that this happened? Is it true that after you shot him, the gun jammed? And is it true that did, you know, Paul LaRue pick up a gun and like an automatic weapon and like start shooting the body, you know, after you'd already killed him? And he was like, fuck yeah, that guy you know, he almost killed me. It's amazing he didn't kill me with his fucking automatic weapon, you know, shooting it all over the place. And I had so much adrenaline going, I didn't even think about it. And he told me about how they dumped the body. And so, and we talked for probably an hour or so. And then he was literally, he was just like, hey man, I got to go change out my laundry. And on the one hand, like I maybe could have gotten more from him, but I kind of, I had all the contours of the story because I knew I would never get him back. And then it cut off and I thought he'd hung up on me. And then he called me back and he was like, sorry, man, when I go get my laundry like that, I don't know what happened. The phone cut off, but I really do need to do this. So, you know, I'll talk to you later. (laughs) And that was, that was the end of our conversation. And then we never talked on the phone after that, but to get to the original issue. So I had granted him anonymity, but they had given him a name in the trial that was not his real name. They called him Marcus. I knew that wasn't his real name. I don't know why Paul LaRue called him Marcus. It was like a nickname that he had for him. So I said to him, look, I'd really like to use your name. I already know. I know they called you Marcus. And we were then emailing and he was sort of like, no, we agreed when we first talked that you would keep me anonymous. And I said, well, I can't keep you anonymous, but I can use Marcus. But I did have, you know, like, what do I owe this person? This person is killed. This person is a cold-blooded killer. Absolutely. And some of the things he told me were just like disgusting and depraved and I had granted him anonymity does he deserve the anonymity what does that rule mean like ultimately I decided like I have to stick by what I what I granted him even though I discovered that he was this other person otherwise like where do I draw the line like I can't use judgments of people later to say but I think if people really lie to you maybe you can break their anonymity like if someone just bald face lies to you maybe there is a cause to do it but in any case right or wrong I, I kept his anonymity I felt like that was more important so he's called Marcus in the book is it hard when you're talking to a 
cold-blooded killer to like remain neutral on the phone to like reserve judgment? I don't think so. I didn't find it hard. I mean, I think there are things that a person could describe that would be so disturbing that you would not be able to do that. But this is a person who's, you know, he's a professional hitman. He's describing uh, people that were part of Paul LaRue's organization that Paul LaRue thought were stealing from him. And this guy was sort of like, as far as I know, they were. Like, I didn't do the investigation. I was just told this person's stealing from me. And he was an ex-cop in South Africa. And so I think I was so focused on getting the information from him and confirming information. Like, I didn't think there was any space even to say, but I did want to be cognizant enough to ask him, which I did ask him, like, how do you feel about, like, does this bother you? Or do you think about this? How often do you think about this? And he did talk about it. And there's a little bit in the book of him. He wasn't a big enough character to go on and on about it, but, you know, he does think about it and it does bother him. And he was sort of like, I think karma, you know, fucked me up. Like I, my life was ruined after that. And I think that's because I did that. But then he was also like, I guess I can never take a Harley trip to America now because the American authorities, like he was so flippant about it too. There was actually one thing that I found so disturbing, which is, it was a small thing, but he said, I didn't think of this as being that different from when I was, when I was a cop. And when I was a cop in South Africa, which was like during apartheid, he was like, if you thought someone did something, you had license to kill them. And we were just judge, jury, and executioner. And that was, I mean, that part was extremely disturbing. But even so, it's like that role of what I was specifically trying to do in that moment is like gather that information to use in the service of this story in which hopefully people will read that and, I don't know, gain gain something from it. Can we spoiler the end a little bit? Yeah, sure. We're pretty deep in. If uh, People have gotten this far. If you've gotten this far and you've not read the book, go read the book and then come back. So five years. Yeah, you're pretty cir- much. You're circling this guy. He is occupying a very compartmentalized part of your life. Mm-hmm. So much so that you're not really talking about it with your friends. Weird. And In a way, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, Paul LaRue was very compartmentalized. Like, he didn't let people in his organization learn about other parts of his organization. That's what I was driving at at the beginning, man. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I'm just getting it. Yeah, that's what I was going for, is uh, I feel like this guy <laughs> doing all this crazy shit, couldn't tell anybody about it. And uh, and was very compartmentalized. I got you. And I was just wondering whether uh, perhaps you saw some similarities in the way that you handled reporting the book. Max, I'm only like a half hour behind you, so. <laughs> That's what I was driving up before. Anyway, uh, here's my new question, though. So this person is looming very large in your life. And then you finally came face to face with him in this courtroom. It is a scene in the book, but I, I wonder what that felt like for you. Well, mostly it felt like a huge relief because I knew pretty early on I was never going to get to talk to him. I mean, even when I sold the book, I wanted to make it clear when they bought the book that they did not think that I was going to end up talking to him. I said, maybe I can end up talking to him. You never know. Anything could happen. But it just seemed very unlikely given the secrecy that he was held under. His lawyer never would even respond to me. His lawyer's name was kept secret, which was insane and absurd. But that's how secretive he was. His lawyer's name was not, it still is not in any court document. You cannot find his lawyer's name. I published his lawyer's name, so he also does not like me, I think. But it was a relief partly because when I first saw him, 
his lawyer tried to get the courtroom closed from the press like the day that I got there. So after a lot of initial, you know, a couple of years of initial investigation and being like, OK, I'm finally going to see this guy. Suddenly I get there and the lawyers on the case say, oh, they filed a motion to seal the courtroom. I would just well, how many ways can I be thwarted to like witness this person? And fortunately, the judge in that case denied that motion. And so I did get to see him. And that was it was just a relief because I felt like the whole thing, like I actually I sent in the book proposal probably like two days after that mm -hmm. or the maybe even the day after that, because I just thought, OK, I, I can do that. Like, I know there's a book's worth of there was always a book's worth of stuff, but it just felt like. If I never get to this guy, there'll just be a hole in the story. But if he's on the stand and at least the lawyer is asking him questions, many of which are the questions I would ask, not all the questions I would like to ask, then I'm set. So it actually felt amazing. I mean, that was one of the best days of the reporting is why I just got to watch the guy mm -hmm. answer questions and kind of see his body language and see what he was all about. And then there was the second time when he appeared on the stand was like an incredible bonus where he testified for almost three days hours and hours of being asked questions and that was i mean also had like a bit of disappointment for me in it because on the one hand he was confirming all these things that i had learned over years but they had been also very difficult to find out like to get to some of this information had taken me so many steps and going to the philippines and all the things we talked about and going into weird rooms and bars with people to talk to them and then he's just up there telling the whole story and I was like I was right I had it all but also someone could have just read this whole testimony right <laughs> and they right. would have gotten a substantial portion of some parts of the story I mean I was trying to tell a different story that wasn't just his story it was the story of the people who were involved in it so it wasn't like oh someone could write my book by reading this testimony but it was I did have a feeling like looking around and being like who's listening to this this is this is not fair. It's not fair that this is pub in the public domain, even though it's a tremendous benefit to me to have it right. as well. Yeah. So like he, the downside of that experience was like, he like um, very quickly and succinctly described things that it took you years to verify. Yeah. And there's like a tiny part of me that's like, if you just publish the transcript of that trial, would it be a better book than my book? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> um, but speaking of other books, that took different routes to try and tell the same story. Uh, there's, there's like another book. There's another book. Congratulations for being the first person to ask me about the other book. How do you feel about the other book? <laughs> I feel fine about the other book. I mean, I'm not really going to talk about the other book because I feel like there's nothing in that. Like my judgment of the other book, uh, which I've read, is just... No one should listen to that. You know what I mean? Like, No one should listen to your judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. My opinion of it, you know, it's like, they're different books. I'll say that. Like, there's certainly different books about different parts of the story, and they're told in different ways. And so, so that part of it, like the actual book, you know, people can go figure that out on their own, I guess. Um, I mean, the process of competing in any way against another reporter on anything... I find to be pretty unpleasant. Like I didn't come up through newspaper scoop reporting and I've generally strayed away from stories where there are a lot of reporters on it. So that part of it was 
a very unpleasant experience, which I can talk about. <laughs> yeah, tell me about that part. Well, first of all, there were reporters who were working on this story when I started on it. Like, not working on it hard, but, I mean, it was the kind of thing where you see this story, like the original story that was in the New York Times and everywhere, at CNN, all over the place. Press conference was Joseph Hunter, hitman, is arrested for murder of a DE agent or, you know, conspiracy to murder a DE agent. And, like, that's a magazine story. Everyone knows it's a magazine story. I called up Joel Lovell, who was at the New York Times Magazine, and I was like, this is a magazine story. We talked about it. I'm sure that that was happening at magazines all over the place. And then when I published a series on it, and different parts in the process, in fact, when I got my fixer uh, in the Philippines, like, she had been talking to another reporter who then was very generous to me, who contacted me and was like, oh, it looks like you're going to the Philippines. I was looking to go to the Philippines and, like, gave me all of his stuff that he had, all his research. Wow. He was Who's like, that? I mean, on the one hand, I want to say it because he's an incredibly generous person, but I don't want to, like, call him out. Like, I beat him to the story. Yeah, okay. You know, like that. You know who you are, incredibly generous person. Yeah, like, unbelievably generous. That's an amazing thing. That yeah. feels sent rare. sent me a Dropbox full of files, Why including you... some stuff that I had not gotten. Just because you, like, got the fixer first? Well, because the whole thing was, like, who's going to go to the Philippines, I think. I think a lot of people were, like had heard about it or if they had contacts with the DEA, like people at the DEA knew about it. So people had either heard of Paul LaRue before maybe, or they saw this Joseph Hunter thing and they were like, wow, that's a crazy story. But you had to go to the Philippines. And so I think there were a variety of people, like at least four or five that I know of who I subsequently talked to who were trying to get someone to send them there. And I just sent myself like I just like contacted a fixer and just paid my own way to go to the Philippines. So and then at that point, it felt like I had a leg up because mm -hmm. that's the thing that you needed to do to kind of get the story. So, yeah, I think the reason that he did that was he was sort of like, I'm not going to do this now. I mean, the, there was another reporter, also a great reporter who I ran into in Minneapolis at one point who went to a court hearing and I was at the court hearing and he was at the court hearing. And then outside of the court hearing, the lawyer was kind of like describing what had happened. It was like LaRue's testimony, I think. And then he was like, the lawyer was like, hey, Evan, what's going on? Because I'd already been there. And that reporter looked at me and was like, fuck. Mm -hmm. And then he quit. <laughs> he quit doing the story too. And so all of which is to say is it was a rare situation for me where I felt like I had like outcompeted people for a scoop. And not outcompeted like I did something so great. It's just like I picked up and went and that just happened to be the thing that you needed to do. And then also everyone else was busier than me and kind of they had other stories to do and they went off and did their other stories. But then I felt like, okay, this is mine. The story is mine. Also, I published a seven part series on it. So like, and actually there was even another, there was a guy for the Australian newspaper who he also did a series at the same time as me, which had some like great stuff in it. And I never felt like that threatened by it. I was like, the story is huge. Mm -hmm. But also like once I had the series out and I'm doing the book, I was sort of like, I don't see anyone else doing this now. So then I, at a certain point, a source of mine said, it was trying to put me in touch with someone. It was like, hey, you should talk to this guy. And I said, okay, I'd love to talk to that guy. And then a little bit later he said, actually, I don't think that guy's going to talk to you because he's getting paid by your competitor. And I was like, what? what? That was the first time you'd heard about it? I started to hear like little rumors. But on the ground, anywhere, Philippines, anywhere, I had not encountered a single person 
a single person, in fact, this remained true through the entire reporting process, who said to me, oh, another reporter was here. Mm-hmm. Not once. And that has happened to me on other stories. So I just thought, like, if anyone's doing this, they would be here. Like, I would, I, we would cross paths. There's a lot of people involved in this thing. So yeah, there's always a chance, but certain central people, I was just like, this doesn't seem possible. So that person said that, but I also dismissed that. I was just like, well, that doesn't sound real to me. Like, that sounds like some bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then I finally reached, like, the person who was one of the most important, if not the most important sources in the whole thing, who was this informant guy. And I was going to talk to him. I had to fly to meet him. I kind of said, like, let's do it sometime in the next couple of months. And then one day he sent me an email saying, like, sorry, I can't talk to you because someone else has gotten in touch with me and they've made me a great offer and I need money. So I'm going to take it. And that was like, that's when I really knew, like I was up against it. Like, first of all, I had to persuade that guy not to do that. And he was going to sign a thing saying he couldn't talk to anyone else. And so I did. You did successfully persuade him. Yeah. I just said to him, look, like you could do whatever you want. But if I were you, like, I would not sign away your right to tell your own story. It's your story. You're obviously central to this or like multiple reporters wouldn't be coming at you. So like you've seen, I had the advantage too of I had done the series. I mean, he got in touch with me. Like I didn't even find him. I I was trying to find him for a long time, but I couldn't find him. And then he found me. So I was like, you found me. You obviously want to tell me your story. You've seen what I've done. You see what I'm trying to do here. So I think you should just talk to everyone. Like, I don't care who you talk to. I'm not trying to get you to talk to just me. And you should think about why someone's getting you, trying to get you to sign something. And he was basically, you know, he said, fuck it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll do it. So I flew and I talked to him. And he's a very important character in the book. But that's when I knew, like, it became very, very stressful. That's one of the most stressful days of my life, I think, when I got that email. I, in fact, when I opened the email... When I opened the email that morning, my wife literally thought that someone in our family had died. Like she looked at me, she saw me and I was like, oh shit. And she was like, what? And I, I had perhaps, uh, taking my work too seriously, <laughs> expressed something that looked like someone important had died. Um, but yeah, that was, that was terrible. So then fortunately I was very, I was pretty far along at that point. So you know, I just felt like, okay, I got to double down and like report harder, but also like competing against the idea, even the idea that someone is hanging out money in the world. It's like difficult and it's also scary because then I went to the Philippines, you know, and people are, there were people who had heard things. And so people would say, you know, like, I want money. And they had never said that before. Like, no one had asked me for money. And so then it's actually, it does seem like a scary situation if you're going in and you don't know if someone thinks that you're fucking them over by not paying them. And then I got things where people who I'd had were sources of mine contacting me and saying, hey, someone's called me and said, you're exploiting me because you're not paying me and you're getting rich off me because you're doing this book. And then I had to like put out that fire. And, you know, fortunately I had spent a long time on it. So I felt generally like people trusted me. And when I said to them, look, I'm sorry, that's not the way I operate, partly because I'm trying to talk to hundreds of people here. So 
I can't even afford to pay <laughs> pay all you people, but also like that's not the kind of journalism I'm doing and that's not the kind of story that I'm telling. Um, it worked, but it didn't work with everyone. There were people, ex-DE agents who had retired, who I tried to contact to interview or to fact check with, who said to me either, I'm not doing it unless you pay me money or sorry, I signed an exclusive agreement. I'm being paid by someone else. I can't talk to you. So part of it is that you're having to do this whole second level of work, which is just like convincing people to stick around or convincing people who've already said they would talk to you to actually go through with it. Like this whole new like element of your job, which is like there's all of a sudden like negotiations that have to be done and you have no ability to like compete with the main lever that is being pulled. But what was, what was it like to be that deep on this project as invested in a project as I assume you have ever been just in terms of time and effort and like care and then know that there is like this other version of it that was going to come out at some point. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it was very upsetting. It was very upsetting, Max. I was very upset. <laughs> I just feel like it's not true that I'm so confident in my own abilities that I would sit there and be like, but mine's going to be better. Or like, I'm going to win. Or whatever winning means, like coming out first or having the story be people like it better or sell more. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which you can win one and lose the other. So I don't even know what winning is, but like my whole goal had been like write a book that my editor likes and like write a book that some people like and then not worry about the rest. That's like, I feel like that's your ideal as a book writer. Like you're trying to stay away from other measures because that's the only bad places your brain will go, your emotions will go. So, but then if you introduce the idea that there's going to be another version of it, that's also going to come out. First of all, there were a lot of, difficulties in reporting the story that stemmed from the fact that people had different versions of the same story. People that I talked to had different versions of the same actual facts. And there was a lot of, I had a lot of angst about triangulating those. And you can look at my 50 pages of source notes and like the note attached to it about how I did that and everything else. And so this adds another layer, which is like, now there's going to be another public version of events. I mean, you're kind of safe if no one else is going to... Right. If you have the only version... Yeah. It doesn't matter if you get it wrong. And like, there are things that I got wrong. Like you can go on my website and there's like corrections that I am, have made to the ebook and things that frankly, if I'd been able to fact check and interview everyone that I tried to fact check and interview with, those mistakes would not have happened, but they still are really devastating. Like everyone to me is very devastating, like in the book. Like if there's a thing where like, this meeting happened at this time instead of this time because one guy told me it happened. It's not like I don't have a source or something. It's like he just misremembered exactly when I, within the period of 45 minutes, mm -hmm. like was the guy on the plane or off the plane? And it's not right in the book. And it's like drives me insane. And like, I'm like, how quickly can we correct this? And they're like, there are books out in the world. But to your point, if you're responsible for the entire historical record of this thing, then no one's ever going to do that. Or sources might do that, but they have no vehicle with which to actually do that. So it it is crazy, and it made me that much more just tense about trying to get everything right, which you can't. I mean, 
I don't know, this is a different existential question, but like the book's 125,000 words. Like you can't get everything right. Like this type of nonfiction book, like people are telling crazy stories and like there's lots of caveats in there about Mm -hmm. who's telling me what, when, and the source notes say there's another version and all that sort of thing. Well, you're also like on your own a little bit when it comes to fact checking, at least compared to like you've written for The New Yorker and The Atavist has like a very elaborate fact checking system and at least my understanding of books in general, not your book in particular, just books in general, is like, it's not like Random House has a fact-checking department. Yeah, that's not their, they don't view that as part of their responsibility. And so that's on you to do and to pay for. And I I mean, there's this great fact-checker, Ben Phelan, who you've also oh, yeah. worked with, who fact-checked the book. And But even that, you can't do it at the level of a New Yorker fact-check or, or a, frankly, an Atavist fact-check. Like the series was checked a little differently than the book. But it's still like you're on the hook to check it. Like, yeah, it's on like you. You don't have the like an institution backing you. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, like when it got into legal, like I did feel like they were backing me. To I, I, didn't, extent, but, I, didn't, I didn't mean like. But in terms of getting stuff right or wrong. It's just literally not the way that industry works. Yeah. Like you write a story for The New Yorker. The New Yorker says, we are going to take responsibility for checking every fact in this story. You write a book for any publisher and they're like. It is up to you whether or not the facts in the story are accurate. Yeah. I mean, the name The New Yorker is on the cover of The New Yorker magazine, and my name is on the cover of the book. Right. And if the book has some fatal flaw in it that I fail to check, then it's not going to take down a random house. Right. But also in this like incredible way and a, a thing that makes you who you are, also most authors do not have like a corrections page on their website. This is a particularly... It's important to lots of people. I'm not trying to like slag yeah. other people off. I'm just saying like I know I know that this is of paramount importance to you. Yeah, it is. It's very important to me. You want it to be perfect. You especially want the facts to be perfect. Um, I mean, I'm a former fact checker, so I feel pretty strongly about mistakes. And also, I I edited the corrections when I was at Wired, like the letters page and the corrections. So I feel like the power of making a correction. It's just sort of. It feels like what makes journalism, not what makes journalism work, that's too highfalutin, but it feels very powerful to make a correction, actually, to say like, oh, I'm going to be transparent about this thing that I got wrong, even though it makes me look really bad. Like, that's a thing that not a lot of people do and a lot of, not a lot of industries do, and it's a unique thing to journalism. But also, I mean, there were people who did not want to have this book published who want a different version of these events to come out official people who are official and ex-official in the United States government who express that to Random House and so to the extent that there are mistakes in there that are the result of someone telling me something that I couldn't verify that ended up being like mixed up in the timeline like I don't want them to be able to hold that over my head like the way to prevent them from being able to use that against me is for me to say, yes, I, I now realize that was a mistake and here's the mistake and we're getting it corrected. Like, otherwise you're scared. Like, I don't want to be scared of mistakes. I mean, like, I am definitely afraid of making mistakes and desperately like seeking out where they might've occurred, but I feel like getting them corrected and saying that here they are is a way of saying, you can't hurt me with that. Like, mm-hmm. If you think you found a thing that's going to cause me to be like, oh, no, like it will. But also, like, we'll just fix it and I'll say it. 
All right, I got two more questions for you, then we'll go. One question is, uh, in your capacity as uh, the co-host of the Long Form Podcast, I believe you have had the same experience I have had, which is that if you talk to someone for an hour and change about their work, at some point, almost always, I find that you can figure out some connection between who that person is, who that journalist is, and why they write about what they write about. And I, I actually don't know the answer for you and this project. Like, I don't totally understand. I know how amazing a story it is. And it's unbelievable and, like, cinematic and crazy and all these things. Um, so maybe the answer is just that it was, like, too good to pass up. But I wonder if you have a theory about why this project was the thing that allowed you to sit in your office for years on end thinking about one person and being so desperate to figure it out. Well, I mean, I'll tell you the things that I tell myself. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I mean, one of them is just that I am interested in people who live lives that are very different than mine. I feel like I have generally followed like a fairly conventional path. I mean, in some ways, like career-wise, maybe not like freelance writer and various other things, but it's not like I've ever been a part of like a crazy scene or like, I'm just like pretty conventional person in many ways. That's how I view myself. And so it's very interesting to me, people who are, are out there just like living crazy lives. But it's also the case that I do think about like, this it sounds pretentious, like that I think about like morals and ethics a lot. But I do think about that stuff a lot, like pertaining to journalism, but but all sorts of things. But one thing that I definitively think is like we're all like less moral than we think we are, like including myself. And so I was very interested in the people who were involved in this thing who had various justifications for it. Like I'm interested in the justifications that people provide for themselves to get deep into something that starts as one thing and ends up as like a murderous criminal cartel. Paul LaRue, sure, but also doctors and pharmacists. And I was just interested, like, it's interesting to think about where the pressures in our lives create sort of like moral ambiguity that we didn't think was there and like why we do things that maybe we would have said, I'll never do that. Or we would look at someone else and say, oh, they're really bad. They're really evil. But then we've never experienced those pressures. And so that combination, that like cauldron of factors is something that I'm very interested in because I feel like it it applies to everyone. I don't know if I wrote the book in a way, it's such a crazy story. I don't know if I wrote in a way that someone would read it and be like, aha, this contains lessons for my own life. I don't think I quite did that, but that's what interested me was why do people make these choices and what pressures were they under that caused them to make these choices? Or was it greed or was it just like all the vanity and different things that we all get caught up in? And also some of them, many of the people, maybe not at the highest, highest level, but many of the people that participated in this scheme told themselves they weren't Yeah, in one way or another. Yeah. As we all do. Right. I mean, so, so in part, what you're saying is just like this story exposes like blind spots 
in very like black and white ways. Maybe yeah. like uh, we all have these blind spots, but in in the life of an ordinary man, <laughs> as you were casting yourself, um, those blind spots are a little bit more like nuanced, you know. And in this situation, it was so stark, and yet still people had their blind spots. Yeah, it kind of reveals that. And there's, I mean, I'll give you an analogy, which you're very familiar with, which is I will not read the ads on the podcast generally, the podcast <laughs> that we are currently on. You will not find me reading the ads. Generally. I think I have done a MailChimp thing. You've once done a MailChimp thing once or twice, yeah. But that's connected to a general sort of like journalistic, like ads edit kind of thing. And I, and I have this view of advertising and sort of like how they use stories to manipulate people that I, at a certain point I realized it's so ridiculous. Like my whole career, like how the money that I have ever made in my life up until this book is like a lot of it from advertising. It's like based on advertising, but those kinds of things, you know, where we get into these modes where we, we think we have these moral beliefs and then we don't fully interrogate them. And then if you do, you realize that they're a little bit more slippery. And I feel like these extreme examples of people where you would look at them and say, wow, that doctor prescribed a thousand painkiller prescriptions a day. Like that person was absolutely corrupt and just fueling the opioid epidemic. But then if you talk to them, you realize they have justifications too. Yeah. They have explanations too. That's, that's what interests me. So do you feel like you have those things? Like, uh, cause I hope that you do not actually morally or ethically slip very often because for me, you should know this, you are sort of like my uh, guiding principle in that general department. So my, <laughs> the way that I try and orient myself ethically and morally is if like I can just like uh, maintain a position in the wake of your like <laughs> moral and ethical stewardship, I don't have to be right there like at the t- front of the boat. I don't even know what the name of the front of the boat is, but I don't have to be there. Just within like the the wake is fine. But do you feel like you uh, slide or is the whole point that you like don't know when you are? (laughs) You've just perhaps given me my first migraine headache in my entire life. Um, I'm not going to admit my moral failings here on our our joint podcast, Max. (laughs) You should try. You're going to have to work harder to get me to do that. But the answer, it's like both. Like, yes, I have moral feelings like a human being. But also, I do think we're all operating under certain rationalizations for a wide variety of things that we don't even think about. I mean, that's, this is maybe going sideways, but like, I feel like that's the whole discussion around like privilege, you know, that privilege is something that you don't think about and it's operating in your life. And then when someone, if you're willing to listen, when someone tells you about it, you realize, oh, I can look back and see all these ways in which it was operating in my life. And now I have to confront those and sort of like the moral consequences of those. So it's things like that, that you just go through your life not even thinking about, that suddenly something else can reveal to you. Blind spots. Yeah. I mean, that's... My view is that if you're paying attention, you're encountering those things all the time. So you're never as moral as you think you are, even by your own standards. You're trying your best, right. 
but you're not meeting them and that's okay as long as you can kind of like grapple with that. Right. And that the end result is that you need to be vigilant. Yeah. I mean, if there's one thing we can say about Paul LaRue, he was not vigilant. <laughs> or if anything, he was vigilant about uh, like going in the most negative possible direction. But that's kind of why I get back to that question I asked at the beginning, which is just like reading the book, I find it impossible that he didn't want at some point to be known. Despite all the steps that he took to like not have any photos of himself on the internet and mask his name and all this stuff. I don't know. It just feels to me like on some level he had to have wanted people to like reckon with his brilliance. Well, I'll tell you something that I haven't, I don't believe I've said in any of my publicity interviews in which I stay. Well, the long form podcast fact checker will check you out. (laughs) Um, I did talk to someone who was imprisoned with Paul LaRue and I had a lot of conversations with him who subsequently got out and claimed to know him very well and had spent a lot of time with him in prison or had a lot of conversations with him in prison. And I was able to verify that this person did, in fact, become close to Paul LaRue in prison. And he said to me, Paul read your series and loved it. And I had very mixed feelings about that fact whether i mean i had mixed feelings about whether that that fact was definitely true i mean i i suspect he did read it because he keeps up with his press so i i know that he probably did read at least portions of it but him liking it was a thing that was i don't know like that's not it's not necessarily what i wanted but you kind of want your sources to think it's fair so i i in some sense i didn't want him to think like oh this is all wrong i mean you didn't call the book like the asshole Yeah. I mean, I did say at some point, like, he's a monster. Like, he was definitely a monster in terms of how he treated other human beings. So I stand by that. I think the facts support that. But ultimately, is he sitting there being like, I'm glad there's this book, two books about me out there? Probably. Yeah, probably. Hey, thanks for coming on the show, man. (laughs) I was here already. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. I am uh, disappointed that I did not get my co-host, Evan Ratliff, to admit his moral failings on his own podcast. That was my goal for that conversation and uh, came up short. Still pretty good one, though. Our third co-host is Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you very much for turning this one around, Janelle. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Our show is made possible by the support of MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to them. And uh, if you would like to thank us for doing this show, you could leave a review on iTunes. That's one thing you could do. You could also pick up a copy of The Mastermind. It's uh, worth your time. We'll see you Wednesday. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. 
In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.